everyone, and welcome to the Gens & Associates podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Young-Ayat, consultant and analyst for Gens & Associates. In this episode, I have with me our managing partner, Steve Gens, and Matt Neal from Ataro Biotherapeutics. The topic will focus on the future of publishing, where I'll be asking Steve and Matt how they see publishing shifting in the next few years. Hi, Steve. Hi, Matt. Um, welcome to the podcast, and thank you both for joining me today. Matt, I'm going to start with you. I hope you don't mind. Could you tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself and perhaps help them understand why we're talking to you about publishing in this episode? And then after that, Steve, maybe you can give a quick intro to about how you've been thinking about publishing to really set the stage for the conversation today. Matt? Sure. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so... I have started my career in the in the late 19th century at uh, GlaxoSmithKline in the electronic publishing group, and we were one of the first groups to build submissions uh, and go from the truck tractor trailers full of paper to electronic submissions, or they were called CANDAs back then, uh, and just evolved into PDF submissions, and then eventually the ECTD. Uh, and I helped file one of the, you know, the first electronic submissions to the agency, to the FDA back then, and just continued my career um, in regulatory operations for a number of different organizations now, currently at Atara Biotherapeutics, and did a short uh, four-year stint in the software business at, uh, at Liquent, who makes the Insight Suite. And uh, we were partnered with Microsoft, and it, it uh, was a really fun journey uh, learning about the software side and gave me a great perspective on the tools uh, that, we, that we certainly utilize in this, in this environment. So uh, that brings me here uh, and, and why we're talking about publishing. Thanks so much, Steve. Do you want to give a quick intro, too? Yeah, so uh, Steve Gens here, and as Catherine said, managing partner of Gens and Associates. And I enjoyed your opening because as I got first exposure uh, to uh, electronic submissions was back in my Johnson and Johnson, uh, Jansen or Janssen uh, days. Uh, you know, Matt, uh, where I was uh, brought over to the R and D side uh, more um, on the uh, ClinOps and digitizing the uh, trial master file, but mm. all this content that had to go over to regulatory and people really. You know, thinking about Canda, the DocuText, those massive printers, yeah, and then yeah. by opening day, uh, rotating over to the Janssen Research Foundation, there was all these tractor trailers, you know, and they're filling up, uh, filling them up for, you know, uh, the three, uh, I guess, versions of paper to go down to the FDA at different routes. Yeah. So it, it certainly has come a long way, uh, you know, like as you mentioned with the ECTD, but I think the important thing for this uh, podcast that, you know, there's some other shifts going on to, uh, you know, kind of have a discussion about that. Great. Thank you both so much. Um, so here's my first question. And Steve, I'm actually going to start with you. Um, since our firm has done a lot of research for many years, tracking different regulatory capabilities, such as submission production, right, and publishing as part of that. And so I want to get sort of our, you know, the research perspective, and then Matt, maybe you can give me the experience perspective. But Publishing has had incremental change since the emergence of the ECTD. How do you see it changing in the recent years? And where do you think it's going to go in, say, three to five years? Yeah, so I think that's the big question. And, and, and certainly, you know, getting mad on this uh, podcast. But I think how I would characterize it kind of past, present, and, and future that, 
Uh, it, it took a while for the uh, ECTD format to really take hold. And really what was interesting is from an organizational standpoint, it really uh, drove, you know, the concepts of, you know, very strong regional hubs, you know, in the, the main regions at that time, you know, which were Europe, uh, Japan, um, and here in the, the States. And although, you know, a lot of the requirements, you know, um, there's additions to them, small changes to the requirements that the software providers, you know, have to update each year, organizationally, um, it's been pretty, uh, pretty much the same. And especially with a lot of outsourcing with publishing, if it's internal publishing or outsourcing, there's the heroics, you know, at the 11th hour, you know, especially for a new marketing submission or an extension. Uh, you know, lines extension, um, where the um, uh, the tremendous amount of last minute, um, you know, uh, labor, effort, sweat, whatever you want to call it, goes in to get that submission out on time. And I think that's the, the thing that's uh, changing because there's new ways, you know, instead of it being a sequential process, it, it, it can be more of a parallel process to really kind of smooth over that resource, uh, you know, curve uh, on it. And actually, as the ECT is getting more mature, we'll see where the ECTD4 goes. Um, it's starting to change again, and companies are, are thinking about it that way. So, so Matt, I think uh, you're the deep expert in this. Uh, hopefully, that kind of set the stage, if you agree or not, with that kind of assessment. But uh, more importantly, where do, where do you see it uh, coming from and going? Yeah, so I am usually, uh, you know, I love innovation and I, and I love seeing progress. I'm usually an optimist, uh, but on the ECTD, to be honest, uh, I, I can't imagine seeing a bunch of, a lot of change possible in the current environment based on, you know, recent and recent discussions around ECTD 4.0 and that evolution. It seems like we're heading down a very slow and painful path in that direction. Um, if it's any, if the current ECTD is any mark for how that's going to go. I mean, you think about, the first versions of that were coming out in 2002, and it took until 2017 until it was mandatory uh, in the U.S. Um, that is that is glacial pace for something that was fairly straightforward, just PDFs wrapped in XML, right? Um, and it's the ECTD virtually unchanged since its inception, really. Um, a couple of minor tweaks to the to the spec and to the DTD, but for the most part, it's still just PDF wrapped in XML. Um, we're still exchanging duplicates, basically. We're, we're storing it, the sponsors at the sponsor end, then we're sending it, you know, uh, a, a digital tractor trailer, if you will, <laughs> uh, to, to the health authorities, rather than really finding our way to a central storage cloud-based alternative uh, Accumulus seems to be looking down this road. DNA Nexus built a cloud-based community uh, for for testing this out. I think Precision FDA. There's a couple of different flavors of this to to at least centralize and reduce the movement, but it's still that electronic paper wrapped in XML thing. Um, so my hope is that we have some compelling event, and that I'm I'm wrong about the timeline because even if we did ECTD 4.0. Uh, the timelines for that extend out quite quite a ways into you know 2029 and and beyond for for that and it just seems like such a long period of time so I'm hoping that we can find some way to leapfrog to a next generation sooner than uh, 
the current pace we're on. And that would really require some sort of compelling event. And I and the, the place where I am hopeful and maybe the change will be faster than I than I uh, anticipate is if you look at sort of the adoption rate for chat GPT, for example, that was a few months. It went from an unknown to a common now embedded in seemingly every single application you touch. Uh, that happened really quick. And maybe some combination of these technologies can allow us to, to move forward faster. Um, so mm. three to five years is, is an interesting window given the AI revolution, but in the ECTD historical timeline, it's uh, really short and not enough time for anything major to happen, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, slow and painful sounds sounds not fun. <laughs> yeah. um, and maybe we'll talk about the AI thing in a minute, but you know, there's also a lot of talk about automation, right? So how far do you think it will go with publishing in the near and long term with this? Are there advancements in it? Like, is that the leap? Hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I struggle because I don't like the idea of making efficient what shouldn't be done in the first place, right? So um, <laughs> you, can, you can automate things that are happening in the ECTD, but then, you know, wondering whether you should do them anyway, you know, the way, the way hyperlinks are made or, uh, you know, the way, so, so we have a process at Atara. We are, uh, a full Viva shop, including the Viva publishing tool. So we've automated and shifted the workload away from the heroics that Steve was talking about and really publish, uh, continuously throughout the life cycle of documents. So it's it's taking a lot of that work off critical path. It's really uh, incredible, the difference. But the issue is still, you know, like I said, electronic paper and inserting some sort of linking token. Um, I'm hopeful AI can help us here, but, you know, we have had natural language processing and uh, things of that nature for, you know, a decade, and we're still not exploiting even that, which would be sort of the simplest uh, way to do it. So um, we're kind of stuck with some of these systems and outputs right now that don't allow us to really get smart. You know, you, if you have fully compliant, structured content authoring data submissions, your options for being able to automate and move information around more efficiently would be way more useful. But here we're still talking about marking up PDF documents, and I think there is is a a bottleneck for us. It's it's a it's a stopping point for being able to progress on the back end. And then, if you really want to look at the way that information moves through an organization and uh, just habits and the way companies deal with these documents there's a lot of change management that would go into the actual contributors to those documents to get them to work differently, think about information differently. Uh, you know, they're still creating, you know, word documents and reports, uh, and, and moving statistical analysis files around. So it's, it's really slow and painful. So, so I see the technology and its utility and all kinds of other, uh, you know, you might want to say less regulated industries, but you know, NASA, for example, is doing incredible things with information. 
and automation. Um, and they're extremely highly regulated. Same with the airline industry. Um, and pharma just seems to go much slower in adopting these, these types of, these types of things. They have a lot of masters to serve, if you will, between the different health authority specifications. Um, even in the U S you have slight differences between CBER and CEDAR and what you can submit. Uh, so it's, it's painfully slow. It is, yeah. it is painfully slow for sure. Well, you know, um, old habits are hard to break, right? I guess, especially in pharma. Um, Steve, do you have any, do you have any thoughts here um, about what he's saying? And I know we talk about automation a lot as a core research team um, across, you know, regulatory. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a different dimension, you know, to this, because there's been a lot of conversations we're having, I, I would say just in the last six months, you know, and, a lot of it is, well, you know, in the near term, say the next year or two, how far can automation really kind of take us and, and really what what's the impact? So I think there's two two categories. So we just look at some of the, the points that, you know, Matt had mentioned, like, you know, the hyperlinking, you know, validation of the submissions. So these are very kind of tactical, you know, automations. But um, when there's enough of it, you know, does it start, you know, kind of changing your view on how you run your shop? So so some of the conversations we're having recently, and it's interesting because we're doing, as you know, Catherine, a bunch of work with our clients just in the last four or five months where they're looking for automation opportunities, regulatory through safety, uh, R&D quality. So it's kind of the pull through. So if you take um, some of the things that Matt's talking, some of the tactical automation, and then also, uh, you know, the nirvana of touchless case processing over in safety. Uh, so if 20% of the, the builds for a dossier can be automated, and I think a lot of the experts on the safety thinks, you know, 30, you know, 35% might be touchless, you know, kind of case reporting. It changes the calculus or mm -hmm. companies are starting to think, changing the calculus on how we source this stuff, you know, is it sourced internally, you know, so are, you know, we need less publishing capability, but those resources can do do more dossier management or global dossier management. You know, if there's a center of excellence, you know, in a different part of the uh, the, uh, the world or even in an outsourcer. So those are some of the like the, the conversations of the impact, even with tactical automation um, that we're seeing. And then you get into some of the bigger stuff um, that Matt's talking about, the generative AI, applying that to some of the safety reporting, the label content. You know, people are, have been experimenting for three, uh, you know, three plus years. Can we get version one? of the CSR, um, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. made by the machine and the medical rider picks up version two, but these are all kind of incremental, you know, from an operational efficiencies uh, standpoint versus, you know, a drastic change in the whole operating model. So we're seeing more companies like, well, how much can this tactical automation mm -hmm. go and does it change the way we source things, you know, in the future in the skills we're investing, you know, in regulatory specifically. So I don't know if that yeah. kind of, strikes any thoughts, Matt, or not, but that, that's some of the stuff we're seeing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I'm not worried about being replaced by our AI publishing overlords anytime soon, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, there's certainly a lot of places we could tactically, like you said, apply this. Um, you know, it, it, when the data is connected and the systems that are 
producing and storing that information are, are connected uh, and speaking to each other, right? It, it can really speed yep. things up. Uh, safety, promo, submissions, all these ones that are kind of cookie cutter uh, can move really quickly through yeah. through a Repeatable. system that's, that's well connected. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that that is certainly true. But I mean, even getting to that stage for a lot of companies where they actually have the same systems talking to each other cleanly, um, is a big step, right? You, the, yep. the bigger companies have a giant, uh, mi mix of systems they've had to use and migrate to over the years that may or may not speak to one another. You know, you, you have opportunities with these disparate connected systems to use a tool like say Appian to sit over top of all of those different systems and create a business process over top. But there's, you know, no substitute for having everything in one place, uh, well, well metadata out and, uh, you know, speaking to each other is very powerful for that automation, but it's almost like they have to do that first. They have to get them connected and sort their metadata out first before they can even begin. Yeah. And I think just, just to quickly comment on that, Catherine, and, you know, because we have a digital, uh, digital framework and in the showcase of that digital framework is the data assets, you know, kind of as you're describing, you know, Matt, because yeah. people get caught up in the system connectivity. As we know, that's easy. It's the, it's the data connectivity, the reference, you know, reference master, you know, data. So the terminology is the terminology and consistent. And once you have that data connectivity, this is where a lot of the the promise could really really accelerate we were just finishing up with some client work it's like yeah as you're crawling with some of the automation and the ai it's you have to accelerate that foundational data connectivity and the reference data management so so steve i think you're starting to both you and matt are starting to answer my next question but thank you both very much these are all a lot of great points it seems like automation could be a topic um, of a podcast all by itself now matt you talking about how you have all these experiences using all these different regulatory systems and tools and you said that you know um starting in the late 1900s which sounds like a very long time ago um that you <laughs> took for so you have hundreds of years of experience and then you took four years to work for the provider side right so what do you think that providers need to do to really continually innovating their publishing um and these end-to-end -end rem solutions that's my last question for you yeah uh so that's that's a great question. I, I really think that what I fig what I learned, especially in that field, uh, trying to work with clients, was you have to really sit and stay vigilant about the user experience and sit with the clients and see how they actually use the tools, not how you would like them to use the tools or how engineers in the software company think it should work, but really see how it goes day to day because. Um, you know, historically features are, are put into software and you just expect users to change and adopt and figure it out. And I think the general user just doesn't move that easily. You have to walk a mile in their shoes really to get it going. You make a really good point about, you know, providers, you know, in terms of what they need to do to continually innovate their publishing and end-to-end -end RIM solutions is to really work with their customers, right? Sit with them to understand what their day-to-day -day is like, um, how they're working. Um, when Steve and I work with our um, clients who are um, from the industry side, you know, they'll say things like, 
oh, well, you know, we, we want the providers to sort of lead, right, with their products to help us understand what we can do and how we can do it better. Um, and then when we talk to the solution providers, you know, they often say that they will create things for their, uh, for their users, but that the users don't really want to use them because it's not, you know, what they're used to. Um, yeah. So where is that balance, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. It, it's a really tough one. I think, you know, obviously they need to improve in a lot of cases, but also stay vigilant about the user experience uh, and not necessarily make assumptions about how people are doing it. They have to like watch their clients use the software day to day and see how they're using it. But at the same time, they should insist much more strongly that clients use the software as intended. So if the way they build it doesn't resonate with users and and the process, then people find ways around it, right? Um, right. So I think it doesn't make sense really in a highly regulated and guidance-driven industry like pharmaceuticals and biotech that there are so many different ways to do things or mark things or call things. It, it, we have the, the data set, the data model exists, the regulations exist. It sh it, in some ways it should really be easy, but I think... Uh, people do fall on old habits and sort of use new tools like their old tools. Yeah. So like, you know, you take uh, using like a, a, a modern application like, uh, you know, Viva from a SaaS document management standpoint, people want to turn it into Documentum and build folders and, and do things like they used to do, even though you don't have to. Um, but at the same time, I think organizations, the software organizations need to look at their licensing models and the restrict restrictive nature of the licensing models where not having the systems on everybody's machine, especially from like a RIM perspective or an information management perspective, not even an authoring document management and publishing perspective, but just from a, a information gathering standpoint, not having the product on everybody's desktop is a problem. And the reason for that is kind of the the cost associated in a lot of times in, in licensing out or the way that it's sold in silos to only certain parts of the business rather than as like a operating system for for uh for life sciences and so we're we're keeping a lot of people out and not not necessarily integrating them into the way it sh information should flow uh, and feeling like the software is not like this other thing they're forced to use, but rather their go-to answers and their go-to source for things. Um, and and you only start to get that when it's like an integrated experience, um, data, content, and and submissions all in one place. Um, but it's right, and they feel confident to use. Yeah, it even, yeah. Know. But they they let us dig our our own problems too you know uh, on, on highly configurable systems they allow you to configure yourself into a corner and then it's hard for them to continue to innovate because they're like oh well we have seven giant customers who you know customize their configuration and they can't use the new features kind of thing so it's this weird chasing of of technology and and uh staying up on the latest version is sometimes prevented too because they are so flexible. So again, going to your earlier, your earlier point, which is they should insist on how they built it and how they're expecting it to be used and get as close to that being uh, a shared reality for the users and the, and the software vendors as they possibly can.
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, time will sort of, hopefully time will sort of sort that out of how solution providers do that. Um, Steve, do you have any other sort of thoughts for this? And, um, and then I'm going to wrap up this episode. Yeah, I just, you know, one thing to respond to one of the things that, you know, Matt has said is, uh, you know, the licensing, it's kind of interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Um, and recently, earlier this year, we had a uh, client, uh, you know, half branded, half generic. So their margins aren't like, you know, kind of the big players. Uh, but it was cost prohibitive to get a license out to all stakeholders where you can maximize the uh, the investment in technology and that consumption, you know, of all the data that's out there to uh, increase workflows, accelerate things, um, you know, so that that's kind of interesting is like, because, you know, the providers have to make money, right? But if you really yeah. want to have enterprise, we're talking, we're in the age of end-to-end enterprise, you know, thinking and I think to your point, um, not, not, you know, certainly there's some that are progressive with the pricing models, but I would say the bulk of the providers are just not there. They're back in the uh, kind of the 10 years ago, kind of everything's on site licensing uh, type of thing uh, yeah. where you could have progression that, you know, maybe out after a thousand users, the cost goes down like substantially because there it's, it's all those, especially at the local affiliate level, which is we're getting outside the publishing conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, where you have a lot of infrequent users, um, but they're a core part of, you know, having all the regulatory activities move, you know, every day, every minute of yep. every day. So, yep. so nothing else then, uh, you know, kind of Catherine on that. So a little, little tangent we went off on. You know, here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's going to be a conversation for another time. Um, so listeners, thank you. Thank you all very much for tuning into this episode. Matt and Steve, um, you know, thank you guys for talking with me and really sort of sharing your thoughts on publishing and the regulatory organization. Um, you know, before I say goodbye to everybody, Matt, do you, do you have anything that you want to say? And then if not, then I will wish everybody uh, a good afternoon. No, I appreciate the opportunity to chat. I think it's a really interesting and, uh, you know, important topic because at the end of the day, the time that we can save in this realm of operations and publishing is it belongs to the patients. You know, if we can save a week, if we can save a month, um, that's a huge amount of time uh, that you can give back to patients, uh, especially in some of the, uh, you know, rare disease categories where you have smaller companies that are trying to bring these things to market. And, you know, we know how much time is, is uh, there potentially to save in terms of operational efficiency. So to me, that belongs to the patients and that's our obligation as, as professionals in this space is to make it as efficient as possible. Yeah, absolutely agree. Thank you so much. Um, so if, listeners, again, thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions or comments about anything that you've heard in this conversation today, um, please feel, re- feel free to just reach out to me. I hope everybody has a really lovely week. Um, until next time, cheers.